clap, snap, high five. For the last seven years or so, every Monday, it's the same routine. A couple of friends who live a mile and a half apart leave their homes, walk towards each other, they clap, snap, and high five, and keep on walking. Every week, rain or shine, this relationship was highlighted in a recent On the Road with Steve Hartman story last month. One of the friends, Gabe, was hospitalized, and he had forgotten just about everything due to his condition. That is, until his friend Andy met him in the hospital and said, Gabe, I need you to do something for me. I know this sounds silly, but I need a high five from you. And he clapped, he snapped, and he high fived. His body did what he had done every Monday for the last seven years. Not too long afterwards, Gabe's memory slowly began to come back. And theirs is a friendship that means the world to these two friends. It's a picture of true friendship here. I don't know what the weather is like in Monday mornings in Nashville, but regardless of the weather, these guys always meet. Imagine having a friend that consistent. No matter what is going on in your life, no matter what is going on in the world around you, having a friend who will intentionally schedule his or her life to make sure that he or she meets with you, even for such a small, insignificant tradition as giving you a high five. You have a friend like that? Do you know that you have a God like that? A God who desires to meet you. A God who desires to meet with you regardless of where you are in the world, regardless of what is going on in your life or the world around you. There is a God who deeply desires to meet with you. And even deeper than that, to dwell with you. I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 25. I'll read verses 1 through 9 and then 17 through 22. And I hope you see what I mean as we read this passage. Exodus chapter 25, beginning at verse 1. And again, I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word if you're able to. Exodus 25, beginning at verse 1. Reading in Jesus' name. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. This is a contribution which you, shall, you are to raise from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I am going to show you as a pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture. Just so you shall construct it. Moving on to verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherub of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends, the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet you with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you 
about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray, Lord, this morning that your profitable word would profit in our lives here this morning, that you would offer to us whatever training and instruction you have for us here in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we started out with the review of what had been happening in Exodus up until Exodus chapter 6. When the Lord tells Moses and the Israelites that he is going to redeem them. And now since that time Moses spoke with Pharaoh. The Lord sent the ten plagues culminating with the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh sends the Israelites out of Egypt and the locals gave them all kinds of silver and gold and clothing to get out of the land. They're essentially paid to leave this land in which they were slaves, to the point that where the scriptures say they plundered the Egyptians. The Lord lays claim on every firstborn of both man and beast in Israel, declaring that they all belong to him. And they cross through the Red Sea on dry ground. God delivers them from the Egyptian army, and the Egyptian army drowns in its entirety. The Lord delivers his people. They see with their own eyes what kind of a God Yahweh is. And just a few short days later, the Israelites get hangry. They're hungry and thirsty. And they're ticked off and mad at Moses for taking them out of Egypt, even though now they're they are free. At least when they were slaves, they knew they could count on having food and water. Now what are they supposed to do? Moses cries out to the Lord, and the Lord provides both food and water for them consistently. Moses' father-in-law tells him that he's doing too much and tells Moses to delegate responsibility. And so Moses listens, and he delegates. The third month of wandering through the wilderness, they're still not in the promised land yet, but they are still being daily provided with food. In this third month, the Lord speaks these words to the people through Moses. From Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Lord offers to them this conditional covenant here. He says, hey, if you guys listen to me and you follow me, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make you my own people. I will be your God. You will be my people. You'll be a kingdom of priests, and you will be a holy nation. And the Israelites say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Sounds like a pretty good deal to have God Almighty be the God who is for you the God who continues to provide for you, the God who will make you into a holy nation. The Lord gives Moses instructions for meeting with him on the mountain. And Moses goes and he consecrates himself, meaning that he would set himself apart. He would cleanse himself. And then he would go and speak with the Lord. It would only be Moses. No one else was allowed. In fact, anyone else who even so touched the base of the mountain, which Moses would go up to meet with the Lord, whether that person be man or beast, would be killed, God's word says. The holiness of God is not something to be taken lightly. God meant what he said when he says this. <clears throat> he takes our sin seriously, more seriously than you or I ever could take our sin. The Lord reveals his holy will to Moses there on top of the mountain, and he delivers the moral law. 
the Ten Commandments. The Lord would hold his people accountable for breaking these laws. These are laws that affect the way that we interact with God himself and affect the way we interact with others. It's God's holy will for us as his people. But God also reveals to Moses the ceremonial law, the laws that were given to keep their focus on who God was and how to properly worship him. They were laws that reminded God's people of his holiness and reminded God's people that it is not okay for you to just come willy-nilly up to approach God. You have sin, and it's an issue. It's a problem, and it must be dealt with. And God provided ways to deal with that sin. Then the third type of law that was given was the civil law. As it would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, they would, be, they would need laws that would govern the civilian life of these people who were wandering through the wilderness and as they became their own nation, how they would function as a society with certain punishments established for breaking those laws. For example, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, foot for foot, hand for hand. Questions should be asked here. Why did God need to give his people rules? If God is going to make them into a holy people, why would they need rules? I'll give you a hint. It's not so that they could break them. We often say rules are meant to be broken, but it's not true when it comes to God's rules. If he was going to make these people into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, why would he need to give them laws? Couldn't he just tap them on the shoulder and boom, they'd be perfectly clean and holy? Wouldn't that be easier? Suppose God could have done that, but he didn't. He didn't because he had a better plan. There was something that the Lord wanted to establish with his people that over the last 4,000 years hasn't changed and never will change for that matter. And it's this, that mankind will always try to bend the rules. We don't like being told what to do. We bristle against the law because it forces us to face the reality that each one of us wants to be above the law. Sure, we'll go with the law when it's convenient for us or when it's profitable for us. But when it's more convenient or more profitable not to, what do you do? What do you want to do? What does your heart tell you to do? It's no big deal. Just go for it anyways. It's our basic human condition. So the law was given. The law was given because contrary to popular belief, mankind is not Mankind never has been, and mankind never will be basically good. The law was given because we are sinners, and we need the law. We need the law to protect our neighbors from the sin that dwells within ourselves. We need the law to protect ourselves from the sin that dwells inside our neighbors. The law was given to show us our sin and also to point out to us our need of a Savior, to show us the difference, the separation between a holy God and a sinful people. We need the law. We need this reminder. At the end of Exodus 24, Moses passes through a cloud and goes up to the mountain to meet with God. And he's there for 40 days and 40 nights, listening to the instructions that God has for him. Now we get to our text. And this is what the Lord begins to tell Moses. Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. In verse 2. Verses 3 through 7 explains the kind of contributions that were to be made. Gold, silver, and bronze. 
material, goat hair, hides, wood, oil, spices, and stones. We may need to get different offering plates if we're going to keep up with these contributions. I'm not quite sure how Harlan would write a receipt for those things either, so we'll just keep going the way that we have been going. That's besides the point, though. Look at how these contributions were given. How the Lord instructs these contributions to be given. Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. It was given freely and willingly, not under compulsion. From every man whose heart moves him, they gave as they were led to give. It was an offering to the Lord. They gave because they wanted to. But these gifts also served a purpose. Look at verse 8. God explains why he wants these gifts from the people. Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them. God was about to do something that had never been done before. Gods were always untouchable. They were always distant. They always needed to be appeased. They were a different category from the everyday common people. They were to be worshipped and prayed for. They were to be separate. They were different. They were to be appeased so that you could live your life peacefully and prosperously and quietly. Yet this God, the Lord, the one who redeems, the one who will be who he will be, the God of the covenant, is now telling his people, I will dwell among you. And that theme runs consistently throughout Scripture. Even from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, when God desires and walks with Adam and Eve, all the way through the end of time in Revelation 21, when Jesus comes back again, to finally dwell with us, to bring us home to dwell and live with him forever. This is who the Lord is. This is the Lord who is speaking to Moses, giving him these instructions that as we read, we think, now why is this in here? What does this have to do with me today? I don't care about what these skins and stones and gold and bronze are for, but God cares. And why does God care? Because it is here. And it is in this way that he is going to dwell among his people. The Lord moved the people's hearts so much so that Moses actually has to command the people to stop bringing their offerings. They have too much, says in Exodus 36. The idea that the Lord would come to dwell among them was their motivation. This is what they craved. They couldn't wait for this, this sanctuary to be constructed. And the Lord continues to explain to them how he would dwell with them, continuing to reveal this to them. It would be in a temporary tent, in a tabernacle, that they could pack up and they could move to wherever they go here as they wander in this wilderness. The next couple of chapters explain the very intricate detail the Lord goes into explaining just how this tabernacle would be constructed. He gives these intimate and intricate details because it's not just mere tent that's being made. It's a very pattern of what we see in heaven. This is what scripture points out. And so it matters how it is built. It is to be a reflection of the holy sanctuary in heaven. The first piece of furniture the Lord describes to Moses is the Ark of the Covenant, which we find here in this chapter. It would be the focal point of the whole tabernacle. Verse 17 speaks of a mercy seat of pure gold, on the top of the ark. 
with handcrafted cherubim facing each other with their faces gazing intently toward this mercy seat. And verse 22 explains why. Because God says to Moses, he says these words, There I will meet with you from above that mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, and I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. This is the place where God has promised to meet his people. This is the place where God was to be found, here in this tabernacle, dwelling in the midst amongst his people. It would also be here that he would speak to his people, continuing to reveal himself to them. Though he wouldn't be accessible to everyone, he would be here, dwelling in their midst. People could point to that holy place, the place that continually remind people that the Lord is different from them. He desires to be in a relationship with his people. He desires to dwell with them. And every barrier, every intricate detail goes to show us just how much God desires that. Every strand of goat hair, every ounce of fabric, every inch of porpoise hide, each precious stone and the radiant gold would proclaim the glory of God, the glory of the God who desires to dwell amongst his people. The mercy seat was where the holy justice and the grace of God met. Underneath that mercy seat dwelling within the ark were kept the two stone tablets engraved with the Ten Commandments. We read in Leviticus what would happen there at that mercy seat. The blood of the sacrifices would be brought in to the holy of holies and the high priest would sprinkle that seat with the blood. It was a bloody mess, but it was meant to atone and to cover the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement once a year. As the law of God was covered over with blood, the Lord promised to be merciful. And the people craved God's mercy. It didn't last forever, though. The tabernacle would experience wear and tear, and the novelty of it would wear off. The Ark of the Covenant was treated like a good luck charm instead, thinking that they were somehow able to manipulate God's mercy. Thinking somehow that they became entitled to God's grace and mercy. But the very definition of the words grace and mercy removes all sense of entitlement there. The tabernacle was eventually replaced by a more permanent structure. It's still a temporary structure, the temple. And the people thought that since they had the temple, that they too were also able to manipulate God's mercy, thinking that since we have the temple in our land, it doesn't matter what we do. We have the temple and God dwells with us. We're invincible. But eventually the temple too would be destroyed. And the temple would be replaced, this time by a greater temple. And by one that wouldn't be temporary any longer. By one who had took on flesh and tabernacled among us. You might be more familiar with this hearing it said in this way. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's that same word that tabernacled here among us. This is God desiring to dwell among us, and he does it through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus replaced both the tabernacle and the temple, and no longer would God be assigned to just one physical location, but he became flesh and dwelt among us. He moved around with his people. He traveled to where they were at. He sought out sinners 
And Christ himself became the great high priest who not only entered into the earthly temple that was there, but passed through the heavenly sanctuary as well, making a sacrifice once and for all with his own body and blood. Sacrifice for all sins for all time. Hebrews tells us that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So a body was prepared for Christ. Christ took on flesh to do God's will to atone for and to take away the sin of the world once and for all. And sin was finally and ultimately dealt with. It is finished, the word of Christ says. His was a sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices pointed to. And as the saints in the Old Testament faithfully followed the Lord's instruction, faithfully trusting the Lord to be merciful as they acted in faith in these sacrifices, God dealt with their sin too, but not in the blood of these bulls and goats, is ultimately in the blood of Christ. Christ came to fulfill the old covenant, but also to establish a new covenant, a covenant through which he has promised to deal with our sin and in which he comes to us still today. Covenant not found in ritual, covenant not to be found in simply going through the motions, covenant not to be used and abused and taken advantage of like a good luck charm, covenant not given to be used to manipulate God's mercy, but a covenant established by his blood which has been poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. The same God who so desired to meet with his people and be present in the tabernacle in the Old Testament to give these seemingly meaningless directions for us today desires to meet with you too. And he does this through our crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, who died and rose again, and who meets you here at the altar truly and physically through his body and blood, which again has been poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins as his word declares. We do this not because we necessarily understand it, but we do it because this is what God's word says. And we trust his word. And it is here that Christ meets you to make you a part of his kingdom of priests, to make you into that holy nation, to deliver to you his mercy and grace. As we prepare to partake of this sacrament this morning, we remember what Christ did so that he would be able to meet us here. We remember what it is that we proclaim, that Jesus God in the flesh came to dwell among men. That God desires to still dwell among us. That he fulfilled the old covenant and established a new one with his own blood. We proclaim his death for our sin. Remembering the place where God's mercy and justice stand for all time eternally united. We remember the cross. We remember the price of our sin. The separation that our sin makes between us and God, yet we remember the one who reconciles us to the Father through his death and through his blood. We remember the price of our sins and the cost of our redemption. And we confess that we are not basically good, but fundamentally flawed, that we are poor, miserable sinners who deserve the wrath of God. And yet it is here that Christ has promised to meet us. And Christ comes willingly delivering to us the forgiveness of sins, reminding us that our sin has been atoned for. 
your sin has been dealt with and Christ meets you here in his body, which is broken for you and his blood, which is shed for you. We may not have a friend who is willing to walk through storm, rain, all kinds of weather and all kinds of trials to meet with you, to give you a clap, snap, and a high five. But we have a God who has passed through the heavens, who has dwelt among us and took on flesh to live amongst sinners and to be crucified, dead, and buried, to rise again and to deliver unto you his body and blood to meet you here today through his word and through his sacrament, to make you a kingdom of priests, to make you a holy nation. Let us pray. Father God, we do thank you and praise you for your word and for its truth. We thank you, Lord, that we read from your text that every word is useful for us. It's profitable for us. And as we read this text in Exodus 25 and the chapters that follow to read all of the details to which you went, to explain to Moses the sanctuary that would be constructed so that you would dwell, you could dwell amongst your people. God, help us to always remember the extent to which you went to dwell among us, the extent to which you went so that you could still meet us here where we are at. Jesus, we thank you for paying the penalty for our sins, for reconciling us to your Father. Thank you for being our Lord, our Redeemer, and our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.